The preaching of God's Word then is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, and from verse 35 to 38. We read of Christ, And He said unto them, When when I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then said He unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. Likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And he said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. Brethren, we come closer with each verse, with each word indeed, unto that great display of the love of God as well as the justice of God in Christ Jesus on the cross. And we've noted on occasion how for any of us, this would have been a consuming consideration. I draw closer to the fullness of the anguish which I know is going to be measured out to me. And yet, brethren, notice with what care Christ is focused upon His people. He is preparing them, knowing what is going to come upon them. Brethren, this is of course an insight into the love and the wisdom of Christ our King, that He concerns Himself with us. That He looks and foresees and considers all of those troubles and trials and afflictions that will come upon His people. Indeed, all eras of God's kingdom have known various degrees of opposition and thus struggle and difficulty and trial. The very opening of the Bible, we see Cain killing Abel. We see, of course, the uh, sons of God and the daughters of men. And we see the uh, sons of Noah. We see Abram and Abraham's descendants. We see Joseph, despised by his brothers, uh, thrown into prison, falsely accused. Pharaoh rising up against the Israelites, all of this in various degrees and ways, opposition against the king and his kingdom. And yet, brethren, we're coming to that pinnacle of this opposition, which is focused with such strength against Christ himself. And we should understand this for a moment. Christ is the king and the kingdom, he is all things. And we benefit only as we are in Christ. But brethren, this also means, as he well knows, if the world and Satan is against me, Christ would say, well then you can be sure he will be against you. Because you identify with him. This hasn't changed. There are doubtlessly some circumstances of emphasis that would be peculiar to the twelve, or here the eleven, that would have been with Christ at this time. But the essence of this falls out upon the church in various degrees still in every age. Notice, Christ's disciples had lacked nothing in His service that He had employed them for previous to this time. Remember, He says, don't take anything with you. When you go and preach in these cities, you're worthy of your hire. You'll live upon uh, the good provision of others. And so, what is it they respond? They say to Him, uh, 
nothing. We lacked nothing when you sent us without a purse, without scrip, without shoes. And so, in other words, you had no money, you had no bag for your money, and you had no extras with you. You went out, as it were, with the clothes on your back and no forethought whatsoever. And when you went, though you had opposition, you also found those who were very willing to receive you unto yourself. This is something that each one of them knew. But now he says, notice, verse 36, Now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip. So your money, your bag of money. And if you don't have a sword, sell your garment, your outer garment, and buy one. Now we could press this to an over full specificity But the essence of what Christ is saying is this. Be aware of your outward provision. Not hyper-aware. This is not Christ being the uber-prepper that has characterized many in our generations, as you'll see in a moment. He's saying, take mind of the ordinary means of self-preservation. And you'll notice He doesn't say, make an idol of it doesn't say build an arsenal. He doesn't say make sure you have food stored up for months and years and you have raw you know, gold and all of these things. None of that's what he's commending. He's saying, nonetheless, you need to be engaged in common sense at this point. Why? Notice he says, For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. You were here last week in the second service. You were given a challenge to be able to present the Gospel exclusively from the Old Testament. And here is such a passage quoted from Isaiah 53 when we see Christ understanding that this is with reference to Him, the Messiah. But this may strike us as strange because he's saying to his disciples, you need to be on guard because they're going to attack me. The things that are written about me are now going to come to an end. He's not saying it's going to be over in so many ways. He's saying it's going to be fulfilled. It's going to come to fruition. What's the connection between these two things? You need to be on guard. You need to be prepared because they're coming after me. I'm going to be reckoned among the transgressors. And you notice something beautiful in that reference to Isaiah 53. It's pointing out His vicarious atonement. It's not just the outward suffering, but He's going to be reckoned, numbered, counted, credited to be among the transgressors. And so His cross, this atoning sacrifice, is though a blessed provision of the Lord to our salvation, it is also, as Peter will preach later on in the book of Acts, the outworking of malice and wretched wickedness against God and His anointed. What's the connection? It's this. Men left to themselves, Satan surely in his kingdom, utterly, comprehensively, and only hate Christ. And as you and I are in Christ, what you see taking place upon Christ is what if the world were unmanaged by God's mercy, 
And if Satan was not, as it were, kept at bay, Christ, as we saw last week, prayed for Simon that his faith would not fail. If we were left to ourselves, what we see taking place by men, by Satan, upon Christ would fall out unto us. Indeed, brethren, some have known degrees of this. But notice he also qualifies this preparation. In our era, there is a whole industry of so-called preparedness. The disciples say, here are two swords. And he says that it is enough. This is a subtle way of indicating he is not some forerunner of the current era of prepping. Two swords would be nothing for what the church would face. It shows us that what Christ is getting at is not be consumed with this preparedness mindset of outward things. Because if that's what He meant, He would have said two swords are not enough. You need to get real. There's a whole legion of soldiers who would be unleashed upon you. There is a whole world that stands against you. I'm not talking about building up a physical arsenal. I'm talking about a comprehensive mindset that realizes you are at war with the kingdom of darkness. And therefore, you must be prepared in every sense, in every way, so as to engage in this struggle by grace, ultimately to overcome this opposition. Brethren, Satan has not changed his hatred. Strategies have been perfected for 6,000 years plus, And he still is filled with hatred to Christ and Christ's people. The world has not changed. It was a good saying of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that men who are so consumed with the news daily, and this was before all that we have, the proliferation said, you could put me anywhere in the world and shut off the news industry and I would be able to tell you what's going on. There's wars, there's famines, there's brokenness, there's riots, there's peace, there's health, there's wealth, there's sports, there's entertainment. And I'll tell you what's more, the world hates Christ and the Gospel must advance. In our day of 24-7 news, we've lost sight of this point. We don't need to be kept up with all of the details because the struggle with which we're engaged is far superior to all of the things the world is concerned with. Because Satan is desiring your destruction, your family's capitulation, your compromises with Christ. And indeed, he will use every tactic, every stratagem, and every effort to overthrow you. So what does Christ say? We can say it simply. He says, prepare. The war is present. The war at His time, was on the cusp, as it were, of entering a new phase. You're about to see unleashed the fury of Satan against the Son of Man. And be sure, if that's how He treats the King, so will He treat His subjects. So brethren, you and I have before us Christ, our King's commission to prepare. We'll consider then 
the cause of the struggle for which we must prepare. And then we'll consider the focus as well as the engagement. The cause, the focus, and the engagement. But for first, the cause for the reason we must prepare. Simply, we can note that it is fundamentally the world's opposition against Christ. And notice, this is nothing new. This was prophesied in Isaiah 53. It was foreshadowed in various ways in the Old Testament. And it was evident even to the disciples. They didn't have only blessed reception. They did have some who refused them and rejected them. But Christ is saying there's a phase, as it were, to this warfare that is about to reach a level that my kingdom has not known before. There's many reasons for that. But Christ identifies the central cause of it. He was reckoned among the transgressors. This is pointing out the fact of sin. So we have to back up a bit. Why would the Messiah be reckoned among the transgressors? Well, because there are transgressors. But why are there transgressors? Well, that's because there is a world of rebellion. But what is sin? What is transgression? What is rebellion against? Well, to ask that rightly, we have to say, against whom is this transgression, rebellion, and sin? And ultimately, it's against God. So the world stands at enmity with God. In fact, as elsewhere noted, sinners are enmity. They're not just at, but they are, as it were, engulfed in it. They are comprehensively opposed to it. So that as Psalm 2 says, the rulers of this world, the kings of this earth, are set against God and His anointed. They despise God and Christ. Brethren, please never let anyone say to you that we don't get to sing of Christ in the Psalter. Many reasons we can say, but one is simply Psalm 2. There is the anointed, the Christ, the Messiah. And there is the hatred, the opposition against Christ and the Messiah. But back up and consider that hatred. Why is it that Satan and the world so hates Christ and the Messiah? Two reasons. One is because of His essential glory as the Son of God. The world despises God. Despises the Son of God. But secondly, because that Son of God incarnate has come to rescue and redeem sinners out of that darkness, out of that damnation, and to bring them out unto a life of blessedness. And if there's anything that misery loves, it loves the misery of others. Have you ever noticed that simple statement, hurting people hurt people? And so those who are hurting, they find almost an unbreakable chain to go on and hurt people. This can be in the most difficult of circumstances to the weakest of circumstances. It's not universally true or unbreakably true, but there's a reason for the proverbial statement. Hurting people hurt people. And in fact, you know it in your own experience. When you've had a hard day at work or with the children or on your own, it doesn't matter, you're more likely to spout off and injure someone in your own impatience and words. That's a testimony to it. The brethren, among the best Christians, if that's the case, it's perfectedly so with Satan. He is himself cursed 
he is already undergoing the miseries of cursedness. And his only, as it were, outlet is both in despising God and despising those whom he would save. But think of it this way as well. When God saves a sinner, it is to the glory of God. It is to the praise of His name. When you, as a converted believer, walk in greater faithfulness to the Lord, it is to the glory of God. And so what's the point? Satan despises every advance. And yet, brethren, is it not astounding? This is one aspect, perhaps the preeminent instance to show this, that Satan's tactics are overruled and used by God for His glory. And so when Christ suffers, as He testifies He will, and the vengeance, as it were, rather the hatred of Satan is there brought forth. Remember, Satan had entered Judas, who would become the betrayer, and ultimately be the instrument by which Christ would be handed over and judged and ultimately crucified. That this work of Satan is actually magnificently, beautifully, perfectly the outworking of a gracious purpose to save sinners. But that truth doesn't uh, reduce the fact that the painful sufferings inflicted upon Christ and His people are real. Christ knows that. He has compassion upon us. And so He sees the hatred of Satan and His kingdom who employs wicked men, some of whom are malicious, and intentional. Be sure of this. There are men and women in this world who hate you. And we're not talking about those of a foreign tongue who are dressed in foreign dress, who go to mosques and other temples. We're talking about people in this neighborhood. We're talking about people in your neighborhood. For as soon as you assert they must repent and believe the Gospel. You'll see exposed in one way or another their defiance against that claim and their despising of you. If you've ever had any sense of sharing the Gospel with sinners with any kind of directness and not just sort of soft-pedaling it, but thoughtfully, wisely, lovingly saying you have need to trust in Christ, you will have been exposed more or less to someone saying to you, dead set in the eye, you are foolish. Your, your message is wicked. And so you see yard signs in different seasons. And so on. Love is love and hate is hate. And so on. And it's all level. Let's just be explicit. It's a leveled statement against Christ. It's a leveled statement against the Word of God. Those fanciful and beautiful signs that people invest thousands and even millions upon nationwide are so many efforts to quench the light of Christ. And you hear it on occasion from the lips of men who can't ultimately control themselves when they call Christians out as backwards and as the refuse and so on of society and the Lord's common mercies, we have been shown much favor in our land. But be sure of this, if it were not for the Lord's mercies, that vitriolic, venomous hate against Christ and His people would unleash against you, just as in other lands where you and I have brothers and sisters 
who are imprisoned for their faith in Christ. And so, as difficult as it is, think of this. There have been fathers who for a season had been generous fathers to their daughters and sons. And had provided for them and loved them and given them a bedroom and given them food and uh, lavished upon them things. But then God converts that son or daughter. And that father whose hands once tended to wounds now inflicts wounds upon our brother or sister for no other reason but that that one has professed Christ. Some of us have had personal experience with those who have suffered such things. And they testify, my father was a loving father. I knew what it was to climb up on his knee and he to tell me how much he loved me. But as soon as I was converted, I felt his fist against my face. What is that? It is the display of hatred against Christ. And brethren, that happens right now in this world. And there are neighbors that we have that are good neighbors. But as soon as you engage with them about the claims of Christ, you can see the beginnings of the contortion of a face that discloses their heart despises your Christ. And they thus despise you that you would have the audacity to tell them about Christ and their need of Him. This is the cause of the struggle. Brethren, is it not at least possible, if not probable, if not certain, that one reason our nation is so generous to Christians in our nation is because Christians in our nation have become casual in their claims about Christ. In the world, you shall have what? Tribulation. You shall. Many of us have softened our stance for Christ. And we do so because we want to preserve things. We want to preserve a family relationship. We want to preserve a good relationship with our neighbor. And yet, brethren, think of how that has gone on for 5, 10, 15 years. Those preserved relationships have seen little, if any, carrying over of the claim of Christ to those relationships we claim to preserve for Him. And the reality is we're implicitly acknowledging as soon as I make the explicit claim from Christ, I know that it may be this relationship is ended. I know that it may be I'm cast out. I know that it may be the relationship I enjoyed will no longer be. I know that it may be that that one will rise against me. Brethren, Christ is telling you that's what's going to happen. If you stand for Christ, you can be sure of this. You will face opposition. Now this is no means or no cause for us to become foolish. But brethren, the the method that most in America have made use of has been a capitulation to self-preservation instead of a strategic move to advance Christ's kingdom. And so we claim we're preserving a relationship for the purpose of having some way of speaking to them, and yet we never tell them of Christ. 
We say we're going to be friendly. We're going to have them over. We're going to go over to their places. We're going to maintain cordial and trite, you know, relationships. And yet we never open our mouth and say, you need Christ. If you don't embrace Christ, you're done. You will get to the end of your life, perish in your sins, and the wrath of God will consume you. Well, why is it that Christ is telling these 11 particularly, get prepared? Think of what their whole existence would be. It would be one unending testimony in life, speech, and in tortuous death of Christ Jesus, the Savior of sinners. It is laughable were it not so shameful that in the Reformed world so-called today, there's a concern and a consideration about cultural movements as if we're redeeming culture. This is not the message of Christ. Your purpose in life is not to redeem culture. Your purpose in life is to give yourself body and soul for the glory of God and the advance of the gospel of salvation for sinners. That is your purpose full stop. If you're a wife, your purpose is to advance Christ in loving your husband, submitting to your own husband as the church is to Christ. If you're a husband, your purpose in that aspect of your calling is to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her to the advance of Christ's praise. If you're parents, your purpose is to invest in your children, to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that they may give glory to Christ. If you're a businessman, your purpose is to be diligent in business that the name of Christ would not suffer reproach. You see, the whole of life is claimed by Christ not for the redemption of culture, but for the advance of the praise of Christ. And when that comes in contact with men who are left in their sins, you'll see what Christ is talking about. The parent, however much you love them, however much they love you, however excellent your relationship is with them, if you fail to speak to them of Christ, you do so because there is a coward within your heart. The child, however old, however young, who you know is refusing Christ, and you're trying to maintain a relationship, but you fail to speak to them of their most pressing need of Christ Jesus is because there's a coward in your heart. But more than that, it's because there's actually little love for Christ. It's not that there's no love. It's not that there's no courage. But it's been overtaken by this point. Notice Christ doesn't say, listen, the world's going to rise up against you, so become clever and become casual and become blended and become winsome and all of that. He says, get ready for the fight. If you're going to wage war, you better be prepared. That's what He's saying. Because the enmity is unable to be resolved. It cannot be resolved. There is no winsomeness, no relativity. There's nothing that will undo the embattled enmity that sinners have against Christ and Christ's people. That's 
An irreconcilable war. And so there's no tactic you can employ. There's no time span that you can endure. There's nothing that can be done. Christ is saying, just get ready. Prepare. Because if you go and you speak the Word of Christ, you can guarantee you're going to feel the struggle and opposition. The world in the church has deceived this generation into thinking that we can just sort of lay low and build and build and build and hope that they might see something that brings them along. Instead of realizing, yes, we must be all things to all men, but you show me in the Bible where Paul was a Jew to the Jew, a Gentile to the Gentile, and failed to speak clearly, explicitly, and regularly of Christ Jesus and the need of sinners to repent. If you can show that from the Bible, the 90% of the Christian's approach to the culture today is justifiable. But what you'll find, as you well know, is if Paul became a Jew to the Jew, what did he do? He told Jews, you must repent and believe the Gospel. When he became a Gentile to the Gentile, what did he do? He told them, you must repent and believe the Gospel. Show me anywhere where Paul muffled his voice. Show me anywhere where he diluted the message. He knew the cost. But he also knew that the cost was worth it. Because the only way that they will be converted is not by my winsomeness, not by my kindness, but by my faithfulness to tell them of Christ. Christ knowing that says, you need then to prepare. But what's the focus of this struggle that demands preparing? Well, we've touched on it already. It is preeminently Christ. Christ is the focus of this opposition that demands that we endure the struggle. And so you see, of course, Matthew 4, what happens? Christ is baptized and He's led of the Spirit into the wilderness. He fasts 40 days and what happens? It's then that Satan comes, ever seeking out the most favorable circumstance for himself. And he attacks Christ. We see it here. He's already been successful with Judas. He's entered into Judas. And you can see a little peering behind. Christ says, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired you to sift you as wheat. And you and I would be foolish to think that similar things aren't going on in our existence. You don't see them. I don't see them. But Christ is helping us see that it takes place. Satan desires your destruction. But why? Because if you become faithful in your message, in your life, in your testimony, He knows His kingdom will suffer loss. This is not to deny God's sovereignty in the least. It is to assert the Lord sovereignly uses faithful messengers to bring sinners to Himself. And so think of it for a moment. Who in the Scriptures is the most zealous and the clearest a supporter and preacher of the sovereignty of God's salvation in the lives of sinners. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ actually lauds God. Father, I thank Thee that Thou hath hid this from the wise and prudent. But You've revealed it unto babes. Second to Him is the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 9 stands out as this overwhelming testimony. It is God who is sovereignly chosen vessels 
fitted beforehand unto destruction and sovereignly has appointed vessels of mercy to show forth His grace and so on. It's sovereign. It's not of Him that wills or runs, but rather it's of God who has mercy. And yet think for a moment, who is most clear in their articulation of sinners needing to repent? Jesus Christ. Second to Him, the Apostle Paul. And brethren, this pattern shows itself throughout church history. The point is, the more clearly Christ is brought before sinners, the more forcefully you'll feel the opposition. It's no wonder, in a number of ways, but it's no wonder that Christ Himself felt the strength of this opposition more than any other. Because He Himself is the Son of God, the Savior, but also because He Himself was the most clear preacher of this good news. It's no wonder you read through Paul's biographical portions and you stand for a moment amazed and you say, wait a second, this man was whipped this many times, he was stoned that many times, he was lost at sea for this many days, he's not gone hunger and so on, left for dead. And you start to say, what is he doing? He was preaching the Gospel. When the Iron Curtain was broken and Christians could assemble again, in those areas where it was once forbidden, men hobbled with bones that had been broken to heal and were malformed now, who had scars after repeated tortures, and you say, why did they so suffer? Because in the face of opposition, they said, it's Jesus Christ you need. It's Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. You, my torturer, need Jesus Christ. You, the one who has power over my body in this prison cell, need Jesus Christ. Brethren, there is a cause, but this focus is with an an unmovable crosshairs upon Christ. The more you preach the Christ of the Scriptures, the more you tell others of the Christ of the Scriptures, the more you live according to the Christ of the Scriptures, the more you'll feel the opposition there is to the Christ of the Scriptures. I mean, this is summed up for us in a very simple but powerful statement in Revelation chapter 12. We don't need to go into all the details surrounding, but notice how this is expressed. Revelation 12, when it speaks of the church under the image of a woman. And it says in verse 14 or verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, the dragons earlier identified as Satan, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood." And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the woman which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you see for a moment, it is unable to be disconnected. When people live according to the commandments of God and testify of Jesus Christ, Satan 
will rise up to try and oppose the same. But here's an encouragement. The Lord is testifying He will preserve His cause. This doesn't mean that the relationship might not be lost. It doesn't mean that our bodies might not suffer. It doesn't mean that our bodies might not be sawn asunder as many of our forefathers were. But it does mean the cause of Christ upon which we are focused will not suffer defeat. Whatever else suffers defeat, brethren, Christ will not. And this actually starts to strengthen us. This actually starts to help us. It was said of one who was brought before the emperor that for the cause of Christ Jesus, the emperor said, I have all manner of instruments of torture. I can take away your lands. I can take away your comfort. I can cast you out of this land. I can take away all of your family, all of your wealth. You must deny Jesus Christ. And in various ways, not only this one, but others who face similar things would say, if you can show me then something that is better than Christ, I'll relent. If you can show me something that is worse than the wrath of God, I'll relent. But I stand persuaded of the Scriptures that there's neither nothing better than Christ, nor is there anything worse than hell. And so whatever you would bring against me, whatever you could provide to me, whatever pain you would make me suffer is not to be compared with what Christ is for me or what I would lose if I lost Christ. But brethren, let's check in for a moment. Is that our profession? Is there nothing to us better than Christ? Is there nothing worse to us than His displeasure and the shaming of His name? Focus upon Christ. And is there not some help to realize that Christ was reckoned among the transgressors? not support. He focused upon My good to suffer on My behalf that I might be forgiven. Surely there is an argument for us to say whatever the consequence, I will stand clearly for Christ. Well, lastly, the engagement. Christ is calling us in no uncertain terms to prepare. And yet notice the various ways He's saying prepare. He's saying in one sense prepare mentally. Because He's warning. Listen, this is going to be your need. You need to come to terms with this. Peter will say it. And it's interesting, as was noted last week, you can read the section of Luke 22 and then read First and Second Peter and you'll see tons of connections flowing from this very portion. One such thing is, don't be surprised by the fiery trial that's been raised up against you. Where does he get that from? Well, it's not only his experience, it's the teaching of the Lord. He's saying, you need to come to terms with this. As you stand for Christ, you'll see two things happen. One thing is, you'll see some brought to Christ. You'll also see others despise Christ and despise you for telling them of Christ. Those are the two things that you'll witness. So don't be surprised when those who despise Christ are given a season of power and a trial of torment comes up. This was foretold. You signed up for it. 
When you professed Christ, when He claimed you unto His covenant, you were then enlisted for this struggle that is before you. So don't be surprised. Do you think there's any Israelite today who is engaged in the war that's being chronicled for us? Do you think anyone who has been prepped and readied and has been briefed and taught and instructed that they're surprised of what they're facing right now? Flip the script and ask yourself this. Is there anyone who is in Gaza aligned with whatever terrorist organization may be there? Do you think there's anyone who is surprised by what they're experiencing? Of course the answer is no. Because they know they're engaged in a war. Brethren, here's where we have to prepare. You need to look upon the whole of this life as a certain engagement of war. You are enlisted by God's claim upon you to be one who is engaged in this spiritual war. So you have to prepare mentally. Be aware of it. Think of how many times the Scriptures are saying, be sober, be vigilant, be watchful. And it's interesting, Christ will come to His disciples while He's being sober and vigilant and watchful. And He'll say, watch and pray. This is to characterize your life. Sometimes people, they lose sight of this and they say, oh, you're saying that I shouldn't really be engaged in all this entertainment, this life of ease, this life of recreation, and so on. And we're saying, no, that's not what we're saying. We're saying, if that has an undue proportion in your life, you have missed the ship. You are out of your field. You are enlisted into a war. You are at war against the world by Christ. Now soldiers in this life, they need a break. But surely, the majority of their watchful engagement is not the break. The break is for a momentary relief to get back into the action. That's the model that the Christian needs today. Yes, there's lawful recreation, but for what purpose? So as to remind me, I need a break in order to engage. I am called to engage for Christ. Prepare practically. Christ is getting at this. All is at our disposal. Money, food, weapons, self-defense. There's no lawful means that is forbidden us. But all is to be wielded for the service of His kingdom. Now we have hobbies of different sorts and that's fine. But the point is not, Christ is not saying you need to build up an arsenal, you need to build up all sorts of food and so on in the normal circumstances of life. He's saying you need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He's made that point already in Matthew and chapter 10. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. To the extent that you need to be thoughtful about your clothing and your food and all that, be thoughtful. But that's not the end. That's a means to the end. The soldier checks his rations not because he's interested in some glorious feast, but because he knows he needs food to engage in the war. He cleans his weapon not because the weapon is the end, but it's a means to self-defense and attack. And so it is for us. Everything in the Christian's dominion is claimed in the service of Christ. Your house is for Christ's service. Your pantry is for Christ's service. 
Your time is for Christ's service. Everything you have has been claimed by Christ to advance His praise. And now ask yourself this question, is that how you use everything you have? Some of you have different workout regimens, and that's fine. Are you doing that so that your body is better able to serve Christ? Some of you have particular you know, times of bed and sleep and food that you eat and things that you do. That's fine, but ask yourself this question. Is that for the service of Christ? Now, this can of course be, I'm called as a Christian to provide for my family. So I have to work this job so I can provide for my family. But add to it what the Scriptures say. It's not just to provide for your family. It's also to provide for those in need. It's also to provide for the ministry of the church. Not just the local, though preeminently in the life of any Christian, but for the advance of the church elsewhere. You work for the cause of Christ. Whether one eats or drinks, or whatever he does, Paul says, let all be done to the glory of God. Prepare practically, which demands examining how we make use of these things. Some of you are able to cook meals. Some of you are able to host people. Some of you are able to spend time. Some of you have talents and gifts physically with your hands and minds and so on. All of that, Christ says, employ it to My glory. Prepare, lastly, spiritually. Peter, as noted, picks up on this in his epistle, just as one example, 1 Peter and chapter 1. 1 Peter and chapter 1, notice at verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Do you know that Peter's not writing to ministers? He's not writing to elders. He's not writing to deacons. He's writing to the church. And he's saying the whole of the church is undergoing this trial, the trial of faith. And so then notice he goes on in verse 13 and says, Therefore, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Men in ancient days would have clothing garments that would need to be tucked into their belt so that they could run freely. And Peter's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Let nothing in your mind so dangle as to trip you up from the engagement you have for the warfare before you in the cause of Jesus Christ. The comprehensive call, body, mind, soul, belongings, time, is to be engaged for the service of Christ. Now brethren, there are ways that we can examine this, but simply ask it, is that the way I'm using my life? Is my life consciously, deliberately serving Christ? When I think about how I'm going to use my money, is it first filtered through how is this going to serve Christ? When I think about my schedule, my time, my business, my uh, engagements, how is this going to serve Christ? 
when I think about my unbelieving friends and family, do I think, what am I doing for Christ to them? When I think about strangers and other things, am I understanding? What am I doing for Christ? Brethren, the last day will not disclose to the glory of any man how wisely they manage their relations apart from how wisely they showed Christ to their relations. That's wisely managing a relation. It's manifesting, disclosing, lovingly, compassionately, tenderly, frequently, regularly, self-sacrificially, Christ. When Christ stood for His claim and many turned away from Him, He didn't say, I guess I was too straightforward. I guess I wasn't clever enough. I guess I should have been a bit longer and a bit you know, more patient. He turns to His disciples and He says, will you also depart from Me? And they said, where else shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And another occasion He says, whoever loves father, sister, mother, brother, husband, anyone more than Me is not worthy of Me. Christ is the preeminent purpose of the Christian because Christ is the preeminent lover of the Christian. Christ loved me, Paul said, and gave Himself for me. And what do you find Paul doing? Loving Christ and giving Himself for Christ. Prepare, brethren, because it's not something that's coming. It's something that is. You are right now in this war. You are right now an engagement in an engagement. You have been enlisted. You have been put in line. You bear rank in the army of Christ to fulfill your calling. What is it that you need? But that you need Christ. And so, brethren, here is Christ's call to prepare for this struggle which preparing demands above all else your firm, your full reliance upon Christ that you indeed may serve to His glory. Would you stand with me for prayer?